Hey, uh, this is an awkward transition for me. I just walked into the meeting and I walked into something about stale food being consumed. No, 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 Deepu. You just have to tell us what's your favorite movie snack. Mine no. <laughs> just happens to be something that's stale. That, that's all. I love all. your honesty. Yeah. I love it. I am incredibly boring. The only thing I take with me to movies is water. Just, just, just a tumbler of water. That's it. <laughs> just, we're so glad you could join us this morning, Deepu. Thank yeah. you for that. Uh... Did, oh my Did you see Aquaman? I have not seen Aquaman. <laughs> <laughs> I think Deepu uh, might have a new nickname. There you go. There you go. All right, welcome everyone. This is the Integrated Care Podcast sponsored by the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. We are so glad you're with us again for our podcast this month. Um, we are just glad to see the great numbers of listeners that are following us, uh, that are listening to us each month. Uh, we've had thousands of listens uh, just in the last six months. And so we're really glad to have you with us. We have our team, plus we have a special guest today. So I'll let our team members say hello to you first, and then I'll introduce our special guest. Grace, why don't you lead us off with uh, saying hello to the folks out there who have enjoyed listening to your voice for over a year now. I can't believe it's been almost a year and a half. Uh, hello, this is Grace Wilson from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where I am the family medicine faculty member in a small family medicine residency program called Great Plains. You, you know, a few months ago, I started just throwing out some questions for us to answer so we weren't just talking about the weather every time when we introduced ourselves. And I thought today we could just answer kind of a silly question, what's your favorite movie snack? Um, so I'll answer for myself. I'm definitely more of a savory than a sweet person so if i can stick a bag of chips in but then the bot the other side of that is i really don't like to make or listen to a lot of mouth noises so i gotta very carefully eat my chips during the movie so i'm not bothering myself or anyone else it's complicated i'd be better off with candy but that's the situation (laughs) wait so your own mouth noises bother you well just i yeah it's a problem (laughs) Wow. I mean, I've heard of other not as people much being... as other people. Yeah. No, not as much as other people. But okay. I, part of it is I want to be respectful to other people watching the movie. I don't want them to hear those loud crunch crunch going on. But then also I want to enjoy myself when I'm watching the movie. So. <laughs> well, there, there's actually uh, I know this because uh, on the Serrano side of the family, there's actually this condition that's that several members of the family have. Uh, I forget the exact title, but it's some sort of misophonia. Yes. Yeah, misophonia. It's a thing. And I, I worry about it for our listeners, too, because sometimes when I listen to podcasts, all I can hear are the mouth noises that the hosts oh. are making. And so then I'm uber conscious of myself because I don't want to cause anyone else that kind of torture. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. I think we do an OK job around here, I hope. But. I hope so. Yeah. And Kevin uh, Radine does a, a good job with our post-production. So shout out to Kevin yes. and thanks uh, the, the folks with Mesophonia out there. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. I, I am drinking my shake this morning, but I'm muting myself every time I do it. <laughs> good. I haven't noticed yet and I have a pretty good ear for it. So I think you're yeah. doing a good job. <laughs> yeah, you got to do the perfect the slurp and mute sort of thing. <laughs> All right. So thanks, Grace. Uh, We also have our good friend, Dr. Jeffrey Ring, who's overlooking the city of Los Angeles as we speak. 
Yes, uh, welcome to LA, everybody. Um, Jeffrey Ring here. I'm a health psychologist and um, a principal at um, Health Management Associates. So I do a lot of work in behavioral health integration, consulting, and practitioner wellness and uh, leadership and high functioning teams. Um, so uh, I, I just um, I just like popcorn, just a bag of popcorn. I hold standard. Not, no butter, not too much salt. Bring it on. Mouth noises and all. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're, we're not, get, we're not getting invited. We're not getting choice. invited to Grace's house. <laughs> well, uh, anytime night. any of you wants to come to Oklahoma, you just come on down. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right. And then, uh, we have, uh, the third member of our team, Amber, Amber Gordon, Amber, say hello. Hey everyone. Um, hopefully I'm coming through. Okay. This is my first time uh, recording the podcast, um, from my new office. Um, I just kind of moved into working a little bit um, in a private practice. So I see a lot of people struggling with uh, chronic medical conditions at the private practice. The referrals have been pouring in. And in addition to that, I was just sharing with the team that um, I'm working in a local emergency room, um, helping to service some of the patients coming in with mental health concerns. So I'm Starting out, early career professional, haven't even been graduated a full year yet, um, but I'm really excited to be able to learn and grow and, you know, continue to preach the good gospel of integrated care. Oh, and my movie snack. Oh, I almost forgot the most important part of this. I love Twizzlers, but they can't be fresh Twizzlers. Like, they have to be a little bit stale. So if I'm, like, no, I'm going to the movies ahead of time, I will get a bag of Twizzlers, open it, and then let it sit out for, like, a day or two, and then they're the perfect movie snack. I am so glad I asked this question. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that's that's my jam. I love it. I'm struggling to say something normalizing about that. Um, (laughs) I don't know why you'd want to have stale non-food. (laughs) <laughs> but i'm just yeah, I'm yeah. just I, i'm not quite getting it yeah it's, it's like stale bread it makes croutons <laughs> the croutons of twizzlers yeah i love it oh i love it and i'm real specific there's no no red vines sorry red vine lovers no red vines it has to be twizzlers all right okay i'm just gonna move on from that one because i'm gonna get myself in trouble uh all right, so we're doing our introductions, and the fourth member of our team is uh, Deepu George. Hey, uh, this is an awkward transition for me. I just walked into the meeting, and hello. Uh, good afternoon, good morning, or good evening. I walked into something about stale food being consumed. No, 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 Deepu. You just have to tell us what's your favorite movie snack. So <laughs> if you are not the fan, I can, I can see how you want to understand the question from that answer. <laughs> Mine just happens to be something that's stale. That, that's all. I love all. your honesty. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I am incredibly boring. Oh, the only thing I take with me to movies is water. Just just, just a tumbler of water. That's it. <laughs> just... We're so glad you could join us this morning, Deepu. Thank yeah. you for that uh, stale water? riveting addition to the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> oh my Did you word. see Aquaman? I have not <laughs> I think Deepu uh-huh. might have a new nickname. There you go. There you go. Is this, is this punishment for walking late? 
Uh, and uh, we, well, let me introduce myself real quick before, before we do the drum roll for our special guest, whose voice you've already heard. But uh, I am Naftali Serrano. I'm the executive director of CFHA. Um, and my job is to help promote all things related to integrated care and support the um, thousands of, of great people working in primary care and other venues in, in the healthcare system uh, to be encouraged each day, to be empowered, and to be equipped to uh, do this work and to continue to spread it throughout our health system. So um, I have a great job. Um, I am not, I, I love movies, but I actually do not like to eat during movies. Uh, I like to be in the zone and be absorbed by the movie. And eating distracts me from the, what, what's that called? I know there's a term, like when you're... Immersion. You know, immersion. immersion. Slow, there you go. Right? Yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't like to eat anything. In fact, it annoys me when my kids are next to me, you know, passing the popcorn, you know, across. It just like takes me out of the movie and into the theater. And I'm, I'm like, you know, I want to just stay in the movie. So, yeah. Does their, chew- sp- does their chewing annoy you? No, the chewing does not annoy me. I did not get that Serrano family uh, gene, but it would bother my my relatives. I'll tell you, it's really interesting going to uh, uh, some relatives won't even come to dinners because they can't take the fork scraping the plate or the (laughs) glasses clinking or anything. That's the answer I should have said uh, instead of water. (laughs) No, you can't. You can't take back your water one deep. Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Well, we have, as I told you, we have a very special guest. I'm going to let that person introduce themselves. We're really happy to have Matt Martin with us. Um, if you don't know Matt personally, uh, Matt is, uh, just by intro, just a really nice person. Um, and on top of that, just extremely passionate about everything he does. Um, and he's involved in a whole lot of things in the world of integrated care, including research, teaching, um, he organizes and writes for CFHA's uh, news blog. So, Matt, why don't you say hello to the folks out there and thank you for joining us uh, today. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Matt Martin. Uh, I'm very grateful to be here today and to uh, to be a guest. This is a, a special group. Uh, so I work for Arizona State University. I teach and do research there in the uh, Doctor of Behavioral Health program. That's an online degree program. We've got a great group there at Arizona State. So the the podcast has been very popular, and uh, it's a privilege for me to be here today. Awesome. And Matt's going to be basically our sort of special guest expert. He does so much uh, work in the area of uh, reviewing research, as well as his own uh, uh, research uh, at ASU that we thought he'd be a great person to help us with our main topic today, which is basically helping you get our, caught up with the latest and greatest in research. Before we get to our main conversation today, uh, I'd like to remind you that our podcast is sponsored by the University of Wisconsin Health Services. Uh, for more on their integrated care efforts, go to careers.uwhealth.org. That's careers.uwhealth.org. And we are grateful for UW sponsorship. Um, if you're looking for other jobs in, uh, in integrated care, there's no better place to look as well uh, than our Career Center, and you can find that easily at jobs.cfha.net. The other big uh, news item is we have rolled out an up 
upgraded, updated, completely revamped version of our news site where our podcast lives. It's integratedcarenews.com. Uh, so go there, check it out. Um, it's, it's nicely organized. It makes it so much easier to read the great blogs that Matt Martin and his colleagues uh, put together. Um, it's a great way to stay updated with the latest in research and also just get tips and tricks from videos, from podcasts, um, from the blogs, from the, our journal, the Family Systems Health. Uh, so go to integratedcarenews.com to keep yourself educated and updated on integrated care. All right. So before we get to anything else, let's take a quick break. Hey, Integrated Podcast listeners. This is Kevin Radine, the Integrated Care Podcast post-production guy. I just wanted to share my greetings as the behind-the-scenes member of the podcast team. I'm an integrated care administrator by day and an audio engineer and Bill Curtis wannabe by night. We thank you for being a regular listener and welcome your feedback. Send us an email or a tweet, rate us on iTunes, or even send an audio clip with comments or questions, and we might incorporate it into a future episode. The team wants to hear from you, and we know you want to hear from the team. So back to the show. Filling in this week for Peter Sagal, live from his gar office in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Neftali Serrano. All right, and we are back. And we have so much uh, planned for today's podcast that we are skipping our entire news and notes, which we usually would do at this time. Um, we want to give you maximal coverage of the latest uh, integrated care stuff. And for that, I'm going to turn it over to Grace, who's going to uh, spearhead our conversation. So, Grace, take us out. Yes. Well, like Natalie said, we're going to spend today really thinking about uh, and updating you on some of the most recent uh, research and information about integrated care. But I wanted, before we started there, I, I think something super practical and really interesting is to hear how do you, and to all the people on our team, what tips or tricks do you have for staying up to date on the research? Do you have any systems in place, any routines that you do? I think our listeners would be really interested to hear that. Well, I will I will dive in. I do I have the software called Mendeley. Mendeley is a reference tracking software. You can download it and it, it helps you do in-text citations and builds your bibliography. Uh, and I didn't know this, so this is I can't really take credit. Uh, credit goes to Mendeley. But Mendeley gives you on a weekly basis based on the kind of articles that you're looking at. It'll give you a summary of other articles that show up around that topic um in in the in the ether space or the interwebs as they call it uh, so they have uh, weekly emails that come up with a series of articles so i find that uh incredibly helpful the other thing this is uh, why i love cfha is what happens in the listserv some question or conversation would pop up and then people would send resources and from that I, you know, sometimes I go through a rabbit trail and then, um, and there I am at a, a really incredible article that's going to really inform the way I think about something or the way I'm going to talk about something for a consult or for a lecture that I'm about to give. So those are two main sources that I have. Yeah, by the way, I loved uh, uh, Jeffrey's response to you in the in the uh, in the listserv. So, so Deepu recently actually put a query out on the on the listserv about uh, does anybody have great resources for trauma informed care uh, for primary care? Um, and then I, I, your, Jeff, Jeffrey's response was, "Good, Doctor George." <laughs> <Here's a listen. laughs> 
I don't know if you're yeah, in a very not... proper British mood there, Jeffrey. <laughs> hey, Kipu, is that Mendeley? Is that a, 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 a pay-for service? I've never heard of it. No, it is, uh, it is completely free. Uh, at this point, we should contact Mendeley. <laughs> I love right. it. I've been using it since I was in grad school. And there's a lot of organization that you can create of hierarchies. It'll pull in a lot of the metadata from the article, but then you can also correct some things. And um, I've found that to be super helpful. And I think it does have a social component. I should find you and friend you on there, Deepu. And I think then we could share things back and forth and see what each other are reading. And yeah, it's been great. Yeah, I think so. Anybody else? Yeah, this is Matt. I have two strategies that I use. Uh, one is Google Scholar. Uh, Google Scholar has a notification system that they'll use to uh, push out articles to you on a weekly basis based on keywords that you give them. And it, it can sometimes be a, a wide net that you're casting, but for the most part, it's it's been pretty effective. You just have to find the right keywords. So that's that's helpful, and that's completely free, of course. Uh, the second strategy that I like to use is I'll go to some of the key journals in our field and I'll sign up for their uh, table of contents. So uh, Annals of Family Medicine, which is a great uh, primary care uh, journal, they, they'll send you table of contents for free. In fact, uh, those articles are free to view as well uh, on their website. That's an open access journal. Uh, I'll do the same thing for uh, New England of Journal of Medicine for uh, family systems and health, uh, and then just uh, a few other journals. So that's that's a nice way to, to keep up to date on uh, what's coming out with whatever key journals you want to subscribe. I'll add, I do something very similar to that. So I've signed up for those table of contents alerts for a, a bunch of different journals at this point. But then I created a rule in my email where when I receive those alerts, they go into a folder, they just bypass my inbox completely and go into a folder where I have all those table of contents alerts. And so about every other week, I'll sit down and look through the ones that have come through in the last few weeks and, you know, pick out, okay, here's a article that I want to read the abstract. Here's something that I want to go deeper. And so that way I could group that time together and batch that time. And I found that's a lot more effective for me because when I was just getting them as they come, I would see it and I would be busy and I would look at, you know, I probably wouldn't come back to it. So this way I can set some dedicated time to that. It works really well. Um, Grace, I think the other thing that I do to kind of take that a step further is um, I use um, Gmail, which I'm sure like a lot of other people do. But um, when I get certain articles that I think are really good, that I've really enjoyed, I then kind of integrate them into different folders in my Google Drive. So then it's easy for me to search key terms in Google and it'll bring those up um, because I still do like a lot of referring different articles, whether it's to patients or clients um, or to other um, healthcare practitioners. So that's a really kind of good way to take all of that, categorize it so it's easily accessible and shareable. I have a very elaborate file system. Sometimes I refer to myself. I would love to see your file system, Grace. I think we could nerd out hardcore. (laughs) (laughs) My friends in my text group for my PhD, we all laugh because they're all like, does anyone have this one thing from that one class that we took eight eight years ago? And I'm like, give me three minutes. I will send it to you. (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm finding this conversation helpful already. These are awesome ideas. Um, Yeah. The other thing is, you know, we work in 
um, a primary care setting and uh, a family medicine setting. And a, a part of my role is also as a faculty member. So there are journal clubs that uh, happen uh, on and off. So that sort of helps me to think more about what am I doing for my scholarship. And we just finished we're re- redesigning our curriculum. That's something that I go through every few years. That also forces me to uh, pay attention to things in a different way. Yeah, I, I, I don't have any sophisticated, uh, more sophisticated things. I, I love that Mendeley idea and the Google Scholar idea. I think I'm, those are things I'm going to look into. Um, the way I do it is probably a little bit more time intensive, but um, I do subscribe to alerts from the American Psychological Association so that it searches keywords there. So that's one thing I do. And those are sent directly to my email inbox. But I find that it's hard, as you said, Grace, it's hard because when it comes in, if you're not in the right space to read, um, it's it's really tough to do anything with that. But the one tip that does work for me is when articles come my way. And so if I get a PDF, for example, of an article, an email or an attachment, um, I can uh, pull it right into Papers, and Papers does a great job of re- of scanning it and then automatically locating all of the bibliographic information so that it's readily accessible. And then it, it's a repository that I have of all these articles that I've kept over the years, and then you can go in and do searches. So I think I've got a better system on the back end. I think I have to find a better system on the front end for staying current and keeping up with things other than just sort of, you know, random things coming my way. Um, the other thing I, I do do is, and and a lot of this is because it's our journal, but uh, Family Systems and Health, I'm constantly looking through table of contents of the journal uh, to see what people are thinking, writing about, et cetera. So, and that's that's pretty easy for me to access. Somehow I've, um, my Twitter feed is full of health stuff. Um, um, that's actually a great resource. I'm, I'm always snipping and cutting and forwarding um, articles and links, um, just a, a incredible treasure. Yeah, and actually, actually, one one strategy is just follow Jeff Ring. <laughs> I mean, if you follow <laughs> Jeffrey, you're gonna you're gonna get caught up with a lot of this kind of uh, stuff. So he's a great follow uh, on Twitter. Well, and that brings up a great point too. I mean, research is meant to be discussed and talked about and shared about, and the way that we engage with the material is not that just read it and we're done but so much more ideas and growth can come out of that when we just share it with a colleague or share it with someone which is a great transition because that's what we're doing today um so we have eight articles that we have brought for our listeners that we are going to cover some clinical topics we're going to cover some more broader theoretical topics and in a short amount of time we're going to use a format where we talk about the headline the highlights and the takeaways from the article. And of course we will link all of these in the show notes. And our hope is that this will just start and move forward a conversation and that you will engage with the research in a new way and think about ways to apply it, but also, you know, come up with some more research ideas so we can continue the process. Um, So let's just get right into it. If that's okay with you guys, we're going to start with the clinical topics. Uh, Naftali, I think you brought an article uh, for us that it's a, it's a meta-analysis of integrated care for pediatrics. Can you tell us more about that? The headline, the highlights, and the takeaways. Yeah, so headline is pretty straightforward. Integrated care leads to better outcomes and usual care for pediatric populations. Um, And uh, this was a really interesting article because it's a meta-analysis. So they're looking at a bunch of studies, in this case, 31 specific studies. So here are the highlights. So 31 studies uh, covering over 13,000 participants that met the eligibility criteria. So pretty, pretty significant number, pretty significant power there. 
Um, and what they found was a significant advantage for integrated care interventions. And it's interventions plural because it wasn't just one intervention. In fact, it wasn't even just one clinical outcome. So they were looking at things related to depression, uh, to behavioral issues, et cetera. Um, they, they really uh, cast a fairly wide net. So basically, these interventions in aggregate were better than usual care. And I'll have a commentary about that in here in a second. But uh, that's the main highlight. Uh, a key uh, way in which you can look at these, uh, the impact of these interventions is looking at the probability of someone improving. So I always like to see that in studies. So this study, the probability of a youth improving on a variety, again, of outcomes was 66%. So a randomly selected youth would have a 66% chance of having a better outcome after receiving an integrated care uh, intervention versus usual care. The other main highlight uh, is the strongest effects we're seeing for collaborative care models. And I'll comment on that here in a second as well. So those are the highlights. The takeaways, well, the integrated care wins again. <laughs> Uh, though my, my comment on that is at this point, I'm wondering if that's a fair comparison. <laughs> and I'm, I'm really hoping that we can have more and more studies that compare different types of integrated care. So this is a good step. And this is a little bit of an older article. It's a 2015 JAMA Pediatrics article. Nonetheless, we really need more, not comparisons to usual care. I think almost anything beats usual care, not because primary care is bad, but simply because uh, there's too much that's asked of primary care. And what integrated care is trying to do is to bolster what primary care can do. Um, the other uh, main takeaway here is uh, that the collaborative care interventions are, are kind of set up for the research paradigm a little bit better. They're easier to study because there's so much measurement built in. Um, so it just would be interesting to see um, for alternative model types, you know, how you study those effectively, um, given that they are not set up with the sort of repeated measures that essentially collaborative care models are, are basically set up to, to do. Uh, last but not least, the takeaway here is integrated care is better, and my sense is that that's because there's a hole that currently exists in primary care delivery. In other words, as I said, we're asking a lot of primary care to take care of all these issues in the patient population, both for individuals and their families, you know, and, and integrated care is helping fill that hole. And I think this study says, yes, we ought to keep working at this, but we need to know a little bit more about, you know, what kinds of interventions uh, comparatively are actually better um, and for which populations. So that's uh, the study by Azarnow and colleagues. Okay. Well, next, um, Matt, I think you brought a study for us about childhood obesity. Can you tell us more about that one? Sure. So th this article stuck out to me uh, because uh, it's, it's focused on integrated primary care. The title says, Reach of a Low-Intensity Multi-Component Childhood Overweight and Obesity Intervention Delivered in an Integrated Primary Care Setting. This came out of uh, East Tennessee uh, University, and uh, we've got some, some colleagues uh, in the field in that area. What the researchers wanted to do is they wanted to use an implementation science approach to identify the reach of their intervention. So the intervention, it's, it includes uh, three 30-minute sessions uh, in the clinic with uh, both the, the, the parent, it was usually the mom, and the, the child who had a certain BMI, and the behavioral health consultant would provide 
education, about uh, about weight, about nutrition. Uh, they would talk about overcoming barriers uh, to making change. Uh, and then they would have uh, three phone call follow-up sessions. So it wasn't uh, very intense. It was it was a pretty straightforward uh, in- intervention. And it took place uh, almost entirely uh, at the clinic. Uh, the, ba- the behavioral health consultants were uh, doctoral level psychology uh, students who were trained in uh, the integrated primary care model. So the, the question here wasn't about effectiveness. Uh, and, and for those who were not familiar with implementation science, implementation science is an important approach for, for our field because the, the question that researchers try to answer when they use implementation science is, is not whether an, an intervention is effective or not, or more effective than uh, something else. The question is really about what intervention works for what population under what circumstances. And so it's more about fit. You know, there, there are a lot of great interventions out there, uh, but they don't work for, for everybody um, for a, a number of different reasons. You know, one example that comes to mind is, for me, is CrossFit. Now, stay with me. So my father-in-law loves doing CrossFit, uh, but it's expensive. It takes a, a big-time commitment. And that's, you know, that's something that I that doesn't fit for, for my lifestyle. So the same thing happens in our field, great interventions, but they may not work for certain populations in, in certain clinical settings. So in this study, they wanted to look at, at reach. How many patients are they able to, uh, to get to participate in the intervention? So they, they used their electronic health record to, to track these, uh, these patients, uh, and they found that the reach, the total reach, was about 10%. So that's that's out of all the the patients that could participate, about ten percent uh, actually did uh, participate uh, after the the team had had promoted it, had advertised it, had invited people to to come. So ten percent is actually pretty low, and this kind of research is important because it's actually the approach that happens in advertisement all the time. Uh, advertisers want to know uh, not only the the number of people that they're reaching. But who are these people? What, what are their demographics? Uh, what is unique about them so that they can tailor their, their advertisement approach? It's the same thing for uh, this uh, intervention for uh, children who are uh, overweight. So it's a pretty low reach. Uh, for me, the takeaway is that clinics have to think uh, pretty hard about what strategies they need to use to increase the reach of, of their interventions, whether it's it's through active promotion. It's through uh, using your health technology to identify and, and aggregate the, the the patients that qualify for your study or, or for your intervention. Uh, th- that's the question that clinics need to answer. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that perspective to that, Matt, because uh, that issue of reach um, is something that a lot of studies ignore. So you'll see a sort of clinical outcomes in power, but if you dig deeper into the study itself, you'll see often with these clinical studies, extremely high dropout rates. And that's just not feasible in a real-world setting. You know, this may be another conversation for another day, but um, that, that's kind of an expensive intervention, right? One kid and a couple parents and three half-hour, um, you know, private sessions. And so I could imagine a clinic director or manager saying, you know, I, I can't pay for that. That's really costly in terms of time and, um, you know, sort of focused use of our, of our staff. And so then the larger question, of course, is, you know, what is the potential savings uh, for, you know, not only the quality of life, but also, you know, cr- avoided chronic conditions over a lifetime if, in fact, we snag 
the obesity problem uh, early on. The, the other challenge, of course, is that those savings don't necessarily come back to the, this clinic in this time. This is an investment in a larger future. And so it raises those other bigger questions, too, about the flow of, of you know, our, our resources and where they go and, you know, how sort of um, uh, broken our system is in some ways that we can't um, necessarily make that investment right now when this kid and this family really most need it. Jeff, I, I think you're right. And, and cost is an important part of implementation research. An intervention can be very effective, but like you mentioned, cost can be a big barrier to a clinic adapting that intervention. You know, one thing that I'd like to see in the future is I'd love to see uh, more journal editors actually require clinical trials to report the reach of their intervention. Uh, because with, with some of these tightly controlled randomized trials, it's, it's not always clear who is this going to actually benefit? Like, what, what, what was the penetration or the, or the reach of that intervention? Uh, and, and so I'd, I'd love for editors to actually require that to be reported. And I think one other thing that's really helpful about that is you guys talking like translation into the real world. And the point of research is not just to do research, especially in our field. There's such an applied component. And sometimes I think you can see an article, especially like you're talking about that really tightly controlled RCT and think, oh, that worked. I'm going to apply that. And then if it fails in your clinic or in the real world, then you can feel like a failure. And so thinking more about implementation and, like you said, reach and barrier just brings us a step, not just one, but multiple steps closer to being able to actually put this research into practice in the real work that we're doing. Um, well, it's definitely helpful. And a really interesting review of that implementation science and what that can look like. Um, Deepu, you brought one for us about suicide interventions. That is correct. And this is from our home journal, Family Systems and Health uh, 2018, uh, volume 36. It's Suicide Interventions in Primary Care, a Selective Review of the Evidence. Uh, the reason we were interested in looking at this was uh, update some of our trainings that we provide to our PCPs, but also really work as BHCs to look at what are we doing uh, in response to suicidal ideations or other risks that may show up. And I think it's a good review of what's out there. Um, and the the method that they use is a uh, standard psych info search, and they verified the articles. And they really looked for packaged interventions to manage suicide risk in primary care or any other brief intervention for suicide risk. And so that the, the important context of the differentiating factor would have been where is this practiced or where is this applied for major components uh, sort of emerged from their review, which revolved around educating practitioners, which usually included PCPs, uh, screening for suicide risk or mood disturbance, primary care, uh, managing depression symptoms, and assessing and managing suicide risk. Um, and, you know, so a couple of things that for us to take stock in is Practitioner education and screening for suicide risk are important, but they are insufficient for effective suicide prevention. So that's something that sort of uh, uh, stuck with me because we are training our PCPs. And, you know, some of them may end up in a IBH kind of setting where they have access to an integrated provider and some of them may not. And so, you know, just relying on this education may not be the whole solution. Um, collaborative treatment of depression by interdisciplinary teams uh, reduces suicidal ideation of primary care patients. And then there are recent evidence that talks about 
single session crisis response planning intervention can be effective in reducing suicidal ideation. A couple of immediate resources that they really track down and are easily accessible are a um, couple of uh, things. So they have uh, something called Prospect or Prospect uh, Suicide Prevention in Primary Care Elderly. Um, and that's a, um, if you go to sbrc.org and look for Prospect Prevention, you get a whole set of uh, resources, SBRC Suicide Prevention Resource Center. SBRC also has a primary care toolkit, uh, which really looks at education, suicide risk, mood disturbance, screening, um, managing underlying depression, and it also has assessment and management of risk directly. Um, and then uh, the last thing that struck me was the safety planning crisis response planning. This uh, includes, this, the website is called suicidesafetyplan.com that looks at managing suicide directly. So it's a broad review with recommendations. And, you know, the conclusion is to echo Neftali's comment, integrated care has a win. But it's a win that can be defined more precisely in, in the future because the, the, the discussion points that they say is IBH specialist training suicide risk management could be important for improving suicide prevention in primary care. Um, and this is a helpful set of articles to review uh, in, in the article, uh, but uh, and overall as a standalone piece. Uh, for those who are considering implementing brief, effective interventions for suicide risk. That's a, that was a great article to bring you to. Thank you. Something as heavy as suicide intervention, but it's something that we work with on patients so much of the time. You know, one thing my interns struggle with a lot is that they see so much patients with suicidality and they come across it so often. Um, and they're like, why are we seeing so many suicidal people? And I said, because you go, you are where the suicidal people come. Um, and so anytime that we can create some more just confidence and support and research backing around the way that we are intervening with those patients, the better. Um, so the last clinically focused article that we have is one that Jeff has for us on depression screening detection. Can you tell us about that one? Yeah, this is, uh, well, the, the headline is kind of the, um, the, the title, um, Advancing Behavioral Health Integration for Small primary care practices, and this is progress, emerging themes, and policy considerations. This is the work of Ekaterina Smalley and colleague, and it was um, put together, uh, funded by uh, United Hospital Fund and NIS Health and uh, Montefiore. The, the highlight was that they spent some really intense and um, beautifully observational time at 11 different primary care practices, really trying to understand the vicissitudes and the textures of uh, how integration comes to life. Specifically, they, they also put together this framework, um, which I'll, I'll talk to you about in a minute. That's the really cool takeaway. But the highlight was that um, they found um, that depression screening with sort of, uh, you know, this kind of uh, guided intervention and attention um, increased from 25% to 33%. I was happy with that increase, but not happy with the you know, 33, I think that that's probably still opportunity to, to grow and improve. I'm a dreamer and an optimist about, um, you know, workflows and uh, enhancing the, the screening. Um, the, the takeaway, I think, is just the beautiful writing that they did about this framework. Um, and I'll, I won't give you the whole framework, but I'll, I'll just give you a couple um, planks of it. 
um, which I think are are great for our own self-reflection, right? The degree to which we are and how we're doing integration um, at our sites. So the first one is about case finding and screening and referral to care. That is obviously the uh, opening the door to having these conversations. You were just saying, uh, Grace, that um, you know we are where the depressed and suicidal patients are. That's half of it, but the other half is that you and your interns are willing and present to have those conversations, which is not always how we've been functioning in primary care. So anyway, there's a case finding, there's a use of a multidisciplinary professional team, that is uh, sort of the watchword of um, CFHA. Um, there's ongoing care management, um, systematic quality improvement, uh, linkages with community social services, and on and on to fill out the entire eight. So. Um, the, the takeaway is the framework is fantastic. The detailed, thoughtful, observational work that they have done is um, impressive. And the framework is a, is a nice um, uh, cogent tool for us to take as a lens to looking at how we're doing integration uh, wherever we may be. I love what you just said about the role of that article for our reflection. <laughs> Because, I mean, as I'm reflecting on this conversation we're having, you know, we're halfway through, we've talked about four articles, and I thought, I, I have takeaways already for myself, for our clinic, and for the clinical work that we're doing, but also just this idea of using research to reflect back to the work that we're doing, and then the work informing the research, and it's this just wonderful, I mean, that is the science scientist practitioner model, right? recursive process of the data informs our work, which informs our studies, which informs and on and on we grow. That's awesome. Okay, so we're going to zoom out a little bit and a little bit and think of a little more broadly and a little more theoretically. Um, DB, you brought an article for us on um, something that I am definitely interested in learning a lot more about and thinking about how we may be able to incorporate in the work that we do about at our clinic. And, and this article is about buprenorphine treatment. Can you tell us more about that? The article that I have is by Dr. Stephen Martin and colleagues. It's called The Next Stage of Buprenorphine Care for Opioid Use Disorder. And it is a really good review because of where we are as a field and, and the science of OUD treatments. It It's sort of like, here's what we've learned in, in the past uh, several years. And uh, here is what we need to do moving forward. And this is really, to talk about destigmatizing mental health, and this is really diving into a phase of destigmatizing what we do for medication-assisted therapies or OUD treatments. So big things is a contrast between previous approach and then new findings and recommendations. So the key takeaways are a medical setting is needed for induction or buprenorphine and home inductions are also safe and effective as sort of the new findings. So the, the main thing is why delay treatments when we can actually give it to patients in a safe and um, effective manner. Benzos and buprenorphine co-prescription is toxic. And so we know that a lot of patients may be on multiple medications at the same time. And the new findings and recommendations are buprenorphine should not be withheld from patients taking benzodiazepines. And so that was an another thing. Relapse indicates that patient is unfit for buprenorphine-based treatment. Um, and the new recommendation is relapse indicates the need for additional support and resources rather than cessation of buprenorphine treatment. 
and they make some incredible analogies to what we do in just regular primary care. If a, a diabetic patient or a, a hypertension patient comes back and their hypertension is acting up again or they're not within range, we're not going to say they relapsed, right? We're going to keep treating them for what they came for. Uh, counseling or participation in a 12-step program is mandatory in the previous approach. And the new uh, and emerging science and recommendations is behavioral treatments and support are provided as desired by the patient, right? Um, and so that should not be a roadblock. The new article is really calling for how do we remove existing barriers so that people's lives can be saved and, and sort of interventions reaching them before. Drug testing is a tool to discharge patients from buprenorphine treatment or compel more intensive settings. So sort of the previous approach, what they are coming and, and sort of warning us now is drug testing is a tool to better support recovery and address uh, relapse-related issues. So that should not be a punitive factor. They, um, you know, talk about uh, dirty screens that we get. Um, we don't call a, a a diabetic patient's A1C that goes higher than the expected amount from wherever they were, if they go higher, we don't say that was a dirty read, right? We sort of say, well, the A1C has increased to nine instead of where they were at seven few months ago. Use of other substances is a sign of treatment failure and grounds for dismissal from buprenorphine treatment, whereas the new findings and recommendation uh, really talks about buprenorphine treatment does not directly affect other substance use, and such use should be addressed in this context, right? And so that, just because people are using multiple substances, that should not withhold them from treating, being treated with this. And buprenorphine is a short-term treatment prescribed at tapered dosages or four weeks to months. So that, that was a cutoff point. Uh, buprenorphine is prescribed as long as it continues to benefit the patient. It's a new findings and recommendation. I'm really getting my knowledge base update on um, MAT-related work for, one, to teach our residents and to also uh, really ask the system to consider some of this for our um, healthcare delivery process. And so th I thought this was an article that may be above my reach, but I, once I started uh, reading into it, I really appreciated what they are saying, um, and it sort of catches me up to um, important things that we can talk to our physicians who may be a little worried about what kind of things would the set off for patients and how do they manage complex patients. The, the big takeaway is, how can we reduce any barriers to access so that people can get this treatment? That's great. And I know we're short on time, but um, I just want to say that, yeah, that's a great reference for people to look at to challenge these uh, uh, beliefs that are very pervasive. Um, and, uh, yeah, that takeaway of treat, 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 um, because otherwise people die um, is uh, really, really important for people to hear. This is really important stuff, really important messaging. So this is Matt. I, I actually met Dr. Martin and I, I shadowed him in Massachusetts. He is a, a, a very good clinician and he's got some great ideas. Uh, this is an important article. There's, I also just wanted to, to highlight the, the current uh, CFJ blog post that actually just came out yesterday uh, addressing some of the myths and misconceptions about medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder. Check it out. It's great. It, it includes uh, Dan Mullen, who, know, who works with Dr. Martin.
in Massachusetts. Uh, and there's no relation between me and Dr. Martin. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. What perfect timing for that blog post. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes too. Uh, so Matt, you brought another article for us about high value primary care. Tell us about that one. Yeah, so this came across my uh, desktop, so to speak, uh, because I uh, signed up for the table of content uh, notification. This is from Annals of Family Medicine. Uh, This is by uh, Rebecca Etz and her colleagues. It's called A New Comprehensive Measure of High-Value Aspects of Primary Care. These authors did something that I wish I would have done. I've got some some jealousy uh, of, of their innovation and brilliance. Uh, I, I love what they did, and I, I hope that it's that there's a lot of uptake in the field. So at least from my perspective, for a long time, there's been a conceptual model of primary care. Uh, there's been a lot of, of course, research uh, on it, but I don't think we've ever had an effective measure of what really makes primary care tick, what makes it so valuable uh, in, in our society. So what this team did was they asked patients and clinicians and payers what makes primary care so valuable and uh, and helpful and important? Uh, and then they they compared the results of of all those surveys to people that they found in uh, four clinics and then two online samples. So they got a lot of responses uh, from people about primary care. So uh, the analysis helped them to create a list of of uh, pretty broad domains uh, about. The, these high value points uh, in primary care. So, for example, uh, and, and this this is all coming from the perspective of, of the patient, which I, I think is also important. So, he, here are a couple of items. Uh, the first one is my practice makes it easy for me to get care. My practice is able to provide most of my care. Uh, these two I like. The the next two, um, the care I get takes into account knowledge of my family, and the care I get in this practice is informed by knowledge of my community. So th- this is now an empirically validated measure of, of, of what patients value in, in their primary care setting. And I think it's got some, some implications. Uh, first, I, I think it, it can be used for uh, future measurement uh, and maybe also for uh, performance evaluation. Uh, I, I think it, it can also be used for uh, w- workforce development, uh, helping to educate future clinicians about what makes primary care uh, important for for our society. Yeah, I love that article. When I saw you post that, I thought I had the same reaction, Matt. I was like, wow, what a great strategy. And so simple, really. Ask uh, all the stakeholders what makes primary care valuable and important. And and then distill what the key factors are related to that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow up on that specifically to look at that list. And yeah, that should inform future research, should inform uh, future training for professionals, should inform uh, how we pay for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Which I, I was just about to say, and that actually transitions into the final article that we have about payment, because one of the shifts that is discussed a lot of times is moving to more of a quality-based payment and including measures that are actually important to patients, like their patient experience. Um, so you brought an article for us, Naftali, this is the last one we have today, about health payment reform literacy. So what can you tell us about that? 
So yeah, this is uh, another article out of Family Systems and Health uh, by Marcy Nielsen and Anna Lefkovich, who are in charge of the policy and management section. And these are two really smart individuals who have really great. So I trust what they're what they write. So check out their ongoing series at, on FSH. This one, the headline is "Learn Yourself Some Payment Facts." Uh, that, you know, they're, what they're trying to say is it's really important for, uh, providers in primary care to know, uh, how the health system works with regard to payment. And they're advocating for more of that, uh, health reform literacy, and they provide some of that literacy in the article itself. So the highlights are the paper reviews, the major payers. So it goes to Medicaid, Medicare, uh, the VA, um, uh, private insurance, uh, even self-pay, um, and looks at the barriers and opportunities for payment for integrated care per payer. It's a really great way to, if you're if you're new or if you just don't understand how all these payers work, really great way to look at that. The uh, one of the other highlights is that they point out is look, mental health payments a big deal money wise. Uh, mental health payment exceeds that for cardiovascular disease and cancer. Uh, in the United States to the point of $16.3 trillion. Um, and they uh, make the point that every payer really presents s different challenges for integrated care reimbursement. The last highlight I'll say is there's a forgotten payer. I love this part that I, I hadn't thought so much about this, which is people are self-pay. So uh, CMS estimates that 11% of all healthcare spending is actually self-pay, and that number is uh, slated to go up as patients incur more risk um, over time. Um, so takeaways. Providers need to be fluent in payment issues in order to direct and guide future payment reform efforts. And not surprisingly, we need capitated and bundled payment reform to adequately fund integrated care. There's really no way to make integrated care work in the fee-for-service um, model. And uh, yeah, so take a look at that article in the latest edition of Family Systems and Health uh, titled Promoting Health Payment Reform Literacy. Does Integrated Care Save Money? Awesome. You know, I think when we think about that through worldview, the clinical, the operational, and the financial world, we're totally in line with the clinical world. We're forced to think a lot about the operational world, but a lot of times that financial piece is the bit that just slips by. And so I'm really thankful that you brought that, that article for us. I, you know, we're just about out of time, but I just want to zoom out for a minute. And for us to think about takeaways, I already mentioned one takeaway for me from this conversation was thinking about reflection and that scientist practitioner model and the way that the research informs the practice, which informs the research. But I'm curious for you guys, as we've spent this last hour thinking about, you know, what is new in the research of integrated care? What are some thoughts that you have? I have some thoughts on this. I, I like that we're seeing more articles on implementation of, of integration care, like what actually makes it fit. I, I think the there is at least some consensus that integrated care is uh, a more effective model than the, the usual primary care model. Uh, and, and there are lots of variations of, of integrated care. Uh, but I think most people agree that, that it does work. We just have to find out what models work best for what settings and, and for what patient populations and that's what um, implementation science is, is, is all about. What, what's the fit? What's the feasibility? There have been studies that have shown some models don't work well in some scenarios. When you go out to clinics and talk to them, uh, that I, I, I've heard from some of them that they, 
that they tried one model, but that it didn't work. So they had to try another model, but that didn't work. And so then they created a new model. And so I think that's the, the next step in the field is, is really finding out uh, how things fit for, for those clinics' needs. Yeah, and I think the other piece uh, kind of to your article, Matt, that I think um, I think is coming a little bit more to the fore is uh, looking at the patient and consumer voice in it. Um, and with that, essentially the sort of collective voice of families and communities. Um, uh, I think there's a little bit more attention. There still needs to be more, but there's a little bit more attention in the literature around that important component. So we hear from providers, we hear from researchers, um, but do we hear enough from our patients and communities and their voice? And I think your article is an example of paying more attention to that as, as an essential component. Um, and that has implications, of course, for implementation as well, um, but other implementations around feasibility, sustainability, uh, uh, tolerability, and importance and value, societal values. Perfect. Um, I think a big translation point for me a few years ago was sort of recognizing that integrated care, IBH, PCBH, all of these things that we do is really at enhancing the fundamental infrastructure of primary care in the United States. And so Matt's article of a new comprehensive measure of high value aspects really um, sticks with me. And I, just like Naftali said, we don't get the patient perspective and voice in a lot of our decisions, financials, operational kind of things. You know, it's mostly designed from uh, a user perspective. It's just mostly clinicians and managers and, and, and healthcare leaders, right? We don't really get a buy-in from the patient side. So I, it really helps me find better articulation and the value of what we do to just strengthen primary care. Great. Well, that is all the time we have for that conversation. Let's take a quick break. So here's the situation. You're a clinic trying to implement what should be a simple screening process for depression, and you're just not getting results. And you're trying to get your primary care providers working together with your mental health professionals, but the two sides just aren't jiving. Meanwhile, everyone agrees that the need is great and something needs to be done. Well, that's where CFHA's technical assistance services come in. We work with projects large and small from one hour consultations to 1,000 hours and help you implement integrated care pathways that are evidence-based and grounded in practical know-how. Our stable of consultants are here to help. Interested? Then simply go to cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. Join the growing list of organizations who have benefited from the best guidance for integrated care around. That's cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. All right, and we are back. And we have another great conversation that I had with CFHA member Kent Corso. One of the connections here with our conversation is that uh, Kent is an innovator, someone who sort of has done a lot of things outside of the box career-wise, and we want to help inspire you to think broadly about what careers in integrated care can look like. And Kent's career is definitely an out-of-the-box experience. So listen in on this conversation that I had with Kent. Enjoy. Uh, I'm pleased to be here with Kent Corso. Dr. Corso has been a longtime CFHA member 
and really one of the innovators in the field of integrated care in general. And uh, I thought this would be a great opportunity to talk to him a little bit about his career and particularly the entrepreneurial spirit that uh, has fueled his career. So, Dr. Grosso, thank you so much for being with us. If you could, please introduce yourself to the audience. I'm sure many people know you, but we have a very diverse audience. So let them know a little bit about you and uh, your work with respect to integrated care. Sure. I'm happy to be here, Dr. Serranos. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a board-certified behavior analyst, and I'm a clinical health psychologist, I'm a prior Air Force psychologist, so I've served on active duty in that role, and uh, I've been a civilian, just a lowly civilian (laughs) ever since then. So um, having fun doing work in the private sector and and in government as well. Sounds great. So you've you've made a living out of uh, innovating regularly in your career. Um, Can you give us an overview of some of the kind of things that you've worked on um, over the course of your career, in a way, as an exemplar of how an entrepreneur in this space um, kind of moves, you know, from stage to stage in a career and, uh, you know, tackles the latest problems. So what, what are the, some of the kinds of things that you've been involved in um, over the course of your career? So I don't I don't know that I've had a typical career um, and I don't really know what the typical career would be for an entrepreneur. I can say that I, although I'm a psychologist, my uh, majors in college were biology and leadership studies. So I'm sort of an atypical psychologist to begin with, having not done an undergrad in psych. However, once I got into graduate school, my early career experiences clinically were in the areas of applied behavior analysis. So I worked with severely aggressive uh, children and adolescents who were removed from the public school system and sent to uh, sort of special schools. Your listeners can't hear or see, but I'm using air quotes about special schools. Um, Uh Essentially, these were the kids who put teachers in hospitals and caused such risk to the system that they neither could be controlled, but they weren't really available to learn. After that experience, I uh, did my residency on active duty in the Air Force and got uh, quite a smattering of different experiences in the health psychology field, neuropsych, sort of the sort of, um, I guess I'd say the general widespread vigorous training that the military medical system provides for, for residents. And then that's where I started learning integrated behavioral health models, particularly PCBH and the care management model, uh, those two models. And I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. And we launched several different programs. And I think that's where I really started enjoying the idea of starting new things or being on the cutting edge of things. That's where I think I I was first introduced to that sort of a work environment. And uh, that's the way the Air Force is in general, is they they operate like a Fortune 500 company. And they are the culture is all, all about being on the cutting edge. So whether I was indoctrinated into the culture or whether it just activated something within me, um, that's where I think a lot of this began. And and so I worked with some colleagues at other bases, and we just published some observational data about PCBH, just trying to contribute to the field. We knew we were in the clinic every day doing this and thought, well, there isn't much out there about how it works and and uh, some of the intricacies. So we decided to just sort of capture what we were doing clinically. 
And I think that some sort of underscores one thing that I've I've tried to do over the course of my career, which is kind of work smart. If I can kill two birds or three birds with one stone, why not do that? Um, and that might be a little non-traditional, but but it it's certainly more rewarding. There's fun and and intrinsic reward in the day-to-day work of integrated care, and then to be able to contribute and try to uh, help others get a grasp of of what integrated care is all about is sort of a second reward. I would say after that, um, based on some of my military experience, when I got out of the military, I was armed with specialized skills and knowledge in suicide, PTSD, military cultural competency, and of course, uh, integrated behavioral health. So I just tried to use those in in different areas. I got connected with some nonprofit work, and for a while I was the clinical director for Give an Hour, which is a nonprofit organization that provides pro bono mental health care to veterans and their families, reservists, active duty, and their families. Oftentimes it fills the gap for where the government's clinical services have holes. And through that work, I actually got involved in an organization called Raven Drum. Have you heard of the band Def Leppard, the old rock band? Of course, of course. Of course. So, so Rick Allen, who's the drummer, <clears throat> has become a good friend of mine. And he, so he started a nonprofit uh, focusing on mind-body medicine. His wife, Lauren, is wonderful. She's a certified Reiki instructor and, and really a practitioner of yoga and all of the complementary alternative medicine strategies and, and techniques. So we would run week-long retreats with wounded warriors out in Malibu, California, and, and all sorts of rope courses and, and uh, breathing techniques, and really looking at helping them find ways to manage their combat stress symptoms. Um, and then really in the middle of all of that, I just started doing teaching and training and consulting for PCBH. I realized that the, the Department of Defense medical system was light years ahead of the civilian world, even though Kirk Strassel and Patty Robinson, of course, were the ones who assisted the Air Force uh, and the rest of DOD in launching their program. But DOD just has so much funding. And so they were able to build a program and roll it out system wide. So I thought to myself, wait a minute, I've been armed with all these skills uh, and there's a huge contingency of healthcare out there who are that is not aware of of this stuff. So in the spirit of being on the cutting edge, I tried to take a lot of that work to uh, the private sector. And that's still some of the work I'm doing now. Yeah. You know, I think one of the, one of the sort of possible sort of lessons from your career seems to be just sort of making yourself available to the needs that you're identifying, because I see there are several uh, instances where you're just really seeing a need whether it's a need for veterans and veteran care, a hole in the system potentially that needs uh, addressing, and then being willing to fit that hole, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. It's it's sort of like, where can I add value and how can I plug myself in to deliver that value? And I don't mean dollars, of course, when I say value, sort of purposefulness or meaningfulness. Um, no system is perfect. I think one of the things that it requires from the entrepreneurial side is sort of an openness to having a role that shifts and changes, um, learning new things, and and whether it's self-teaching or working with others who are experts in a certain area so that you can responsibly fill that gap. 
Yeah, I think that's a crucial lesson there. So what the entrepreneur then needs to um, sort of master is the art of managing risk, right? Because all of, you know, making yourself available is a risk, whether you're, you know, uh, taking another avenue in your career and saying, maybe I can help and learn this, or whether it's even something as um, sort of more extreme as starting your own business, for example. Um, so tell me about how you, is it something more intrinsic to you as a person that you, you're okay with taking risk um, in your career? Um, or is it, uh, do you think something that actually could be learned? It's, it's funny that you ask that because um, I often say that my true calling is I'd be a musician or some sort of an artist or an actor, something in the arts, because I just enjoy that. I think the creativity that goes into it and the uh, challenge of, of, of creating uh, in and of itself is just fun, but I'm not willing to live paycheck to paycheck. And there are plenty of talented musicians out there who never make it. So it's funny in that way, I'm very risk averse, but when it, I think once I felt a self-efficacy with the skill set I learned through graduate school and, and thereafter, I think that's what enabled me to uh, take risks. I would say that I haven't gone the venture capitalist route, which is a bit more risky. One out of 10 startups makes it. Those are not great odds. Um, when you do decide to use an angel investor or a venture capitalist to try to fund a startup, you often lose control. Uh, if you have an initial mission or vision, that can sometimes be eclipsed by the financials, which is oftentimes what the, the funder is most interested in. And understandably, they're taking a risk investing as well. So my approach to entrepreneurial ventures has, has been pretty low risk in a way. In other words, it's self-funded. It's uh, what, what we call sweat equity. It's nights and weekends of work. But it's the kind of thing where if you're doing something you love, it's, it's not work. Work is play. And I think that's an intrinsic thing that, that is just different for different people. Some people really appreciate work to be uh, sort of circumscribed and compartmentalized. And then play is something different. And then for some of us, work is play. And so I think that's part of what allows me to take some risks. I would also say that my wife, who is... Uh, She's also a clinical psychologist. She has a federal job, which means uh, that's where my medical benefits come from. And although that's personal information, I'm happy to share. It just means that we're kind of balancing our risk. I hate the word risk portfolio, but that's really what it is. I mean, I'm uh, sort of uh, doing independent work and self-employed in, in most cases. And then she's got sort of the steady government job that has a, a pension tied to it and, and great benefits. So. It's helpful to have some of that uh, context for folks thinking about how it practically works out. So I know you're working on, you're always working on some stuff. You've got ideas and that's the creative part. I'm glad you tied that in because uh, I, I love that, that connection, right? Being an entrepreneur often is really not about, um, it is about the money. Everything's about money on some level, right? You have to fund yourself, but a lot of it's about the spirit of creativity. It's about putting something out there in the world. And uh, you, you're always working on something, at least in my experience of you as an individual, which I appreciate. Um, what are you working on now? I, I think I have this penchant for juggling, although if you give me five oranges or even three oranges, I can't juggle them at all. But I 
I really do enjoy just juggling projects. I think um, I learned early on that psychology as a, as a degree is one of the most versatile degrees you can get. And I think there's a part of me that likes using that versatility and, and sort of exercising it. That's probably a better word. And so one of the things that um, um, we're working on now is I, other than the teaching and training and consulting for innovative behavioral health, uh, I've recently, we published a book for the business and healthcare operations community, people who are responsible for showing either a return on investment in the form of direct revenue, cost offset, cost savings, and then things like hiring and how to choose the right behavioral health program that suits your organization's needs and, and oftentimes the goals of what you're looking to accomplish by integrated behavioral health. So that's fun. And, and we're talking about a second edition sometime soon. And then on a totally different side, I'm, I have a software startup. So we recently launched an app on the Apple Store. It's a native device that we or a native application for the iPad and iPad mini. It'll soon be on the MacBook or the iMac. Um, and it's sort of predictive analytics is the best way to say it. If, if SPSS is an example of a statistical software program that helps people do multivariate statistical analyses, this app is called AIMSTAR, A-I-M-S-T-A-R. AIMSTAR is, a, is sort of the app that does the predictive analytics for single case research design. So got involved in this with some other veterans. Uh, they're actually army vets. I won't hold that against them. <laughs> but um, there's some you know, great guys who have a similar passion for trying to deliver impact. And so one of them is a, a longtime network architect who worked for the Cleveland Clinic for over a decade, doing all of their app development, and a lot of their IT work. And then the other is someone who I met uh, in the behavior analysis field, who is doing his master's in criminal justice and behavior analysis, which is uh, a really interesting application of the science. And so we were just talking about wanting to create an app. And we said, you know, there are so many people out there who have good ideas for apps, but no means to bring them to the market. In order to get an app to the market, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. And frankly, it's because you're paying the salaries of the people employed by the company. So we said, how can we, uh, we've read books ju just for the heck of it, good books to read for, for the strategies we've taken are things like Running Lean or The Lean Startup. The other good book is something called The, the Founder's Dilemma. And there, it's, just, it's just ways of, of doing entrepreneurial ventures without securing lots of, of seed funding or venture, VC funding. Anyway, so we said, if we could start a company where we help people, sort of the little guy, the, just, just people who have good ideas but aren't a part of a big operation, how can we help them bring their ideas to market? And so that was our original idea. And our first product is uh, this app called AIMSTAR. So it's, you can track anything from dollars to behaviors to other types of programmatic outcomes. So it helps with program outcome evaluation and, and prediction. I could tell you all about the theory that that lies underneath it, but I think it would be a real snoozer for most of the listeners. Um, the, the long and the short of it is that we, we uh, when we were sitting down to say, well, what app would we de develop? We looked for holes and gaps that exist and said, how can we add value and sort of fill that gap? And we found that in the late 60s, there was something that was developed called the standard acceleration chart. 
Ogden Lindley Lindley is is the scientist name. He was a student of B.F. Skinner. And I was colleagues with a student of his. Her name's Abigail Calkin, uh, who's a super, she's actually a school psychologist, lives in Alaska. And they, they, they do this thing called the standard acceleration chart. And it's a way of analyzing behavior and other phenomenon by looking at the derivative of the rate, meaning you're looking at, a, at the rate at which the rate changes. And so it makes it an earlier predictor and a more stable predictor. It also allows you to compare apples and oranges. So we said, okay, it's the year 2011. And actually that was 2013. The chart came out in 64 or 67. Why in the world isn't there a tech solution? The field, and, and behavior analysis is, is a big field, but unfortunately it's, it's been pigeonholed into the developmental disability world and, and, and uh, intellectual disability world. But, but it still has corporate applications, OBM applications. And so he said, how come all these people are using paper and pencil instead of computers? And so we, we set out to, to create the first digital chart. And, and uh, last August, we, we put it on the, the, eyes, you know, the Apple store. And so far, we've been able to use it in helping the Air National Guard do a, a pilot program outcome evaluation of its suicide prevention program. That was about a year and a half ago. And then we, are, we currently have a contract with the Air Force. We're actually a subcontractor on a research study repeating that same analytical method with one of the Air Force bases that has the highest suicide rates of all bases. And so that's about a year into that um, sort of a, a project. So it's a lot of fun. I've learned more about coding than I ever wanted to know. I'm not a computer guru, so it's ironic that I'm part of a, a software launch. <laughs> Yeah, but what it really sort of addresses is the idea that uh, a big part of uh, these startups is uh, is putting together the right sort of teams around a vision, um, and then, as you said, often putting in a lot of sweat equity re related to it. And so that uh, that connectivity is a big part, I think, of the entrepreneurial spirit as well to be able to put together talent to produce a product that's. Maybe people for 40 years had not <laughs> thought, hey, we, maybe we should do this a, a better way. So that's a great, great application. Well, uh, I have one more question for you, and it's really just to the future sort of entrepreneurs. There's a lot of young people that are part of CFHA who perhaps in the academic world, there's a little bit of a different way of going about things, right? Your career path is straddles both the academic world and the world of uh, private and governmental work. What advice would you give to folks who have that entrepreneurial spirit and that um, are thinking, how do I piece together a satisfying career? I don't fit perfectly in the academic world. I maybe don't fit perfectly in the business world. Uh, maybe I don't fit perfectly in the government world. But you know, you're an example of being able to piece all those together and have a really, it sounds like, really satisfying career. So what, what advice would you give to uh, young people out there who maybe embody that spirit? I think the first is lower your expectations. Um, they say that when you launch your own startup, it takes a good three years before you're really doing business. If you look at traditional business schools, I, I've, I've only taken one business course in my life. It was um, an entrepreneurial leadership course at, in college. And they said, if you're going to have a startup, you need at least one year of operating costs. From the day you launch, assume that the, that first year of business, you won't bring in any revenue. It's just sort of operating costs. 
And I've never been brave enough to use that model, um, but I have found that the other estimation is is dead on, is that if you're going to launch something, it takes a good three years before you'll even see your first client or first iteration of your product where you can sell it uh, or make your first dollar on that product, whatever it is. Something also to be aware of, if, if you look at the, the GDP, the gross domestic product in our country, in the world, the, the civilized world at large, we're no longer a widget-based world economy. We're a service-based economy. If you think about, if everybody thinks about where they spend their own money, sure, we buy things, but we pay for things like, you know, at Starbucks, certainly we're paying for coffee, but there's also a service associated with that. People pay for all sorts of services, getting their lawn mowed, maybe. Maybe some people get their house cleaned. Uh, even even restaurants now pay for specialized bartenders to come in as, I guess what they call mixologists and design cocktails for them. So it's, it's such a, it's so interesting how, how the business world has evolved. So I think be aware that it's a service-based world, not that a widget, widget-based idea can't make it. Of course it can make it, but I think just be aware of, of where the, the center of gravity is and, and where the, um, the markets are going. I think also also um, the the other thing I would I would say is don't ever give up. I mean, th- where there's a will, there's a way. And if if you think you've got a good idea, ask lots of people, bounce it off them, and have them poke as many holes in it as they can. Because frankly, that's what if you decide to get investors, that's what the investors will do. If you um, are looking to sell to consumers those sort of doubts about why they should or shouldn't buy your product, that's the feedback you're going to get from friends and family. So I think ask people for honest feedback. And then the other thing I would say, and this is probably not fair, is just be open to new things. Look for voids, look for gaps, and and think about how you can fill them. If you look at people like Mark Zuckerberg and and even the whole dot-com era where people just had good ideas and there was this infrastructure and space to present them. That's why people had such a boom with dot-coms. I I don't think it was necessarily that any of them, and I'm not talking about Mark Zuckerberg specifically, but (laughs) I think there are a lot of people out there. It's not that they are rocket scientists. It's that they have a good idea and they're able to get it in front of an audience. And, and uh, I think just hard work and, and timing is also everything. So be be mindful of when the right time is. I think many of us, and I say this admittedly, get very excited about a new idea and a new project. And it can be so easy to jump into it because there is an emotional sort of passionate side to doing this work. But you have to temper that with, with some real logic and, and sort of calculation about risk and likelihood of success. And and honestly, that's where partners, business partners come in handy, or at least having good business advisors, people who are entrepreneurs or business people who have done this kind of work before, that can be real helpful. And and then again, there's nothing like books. I've mentioned a few on this podcast, things like starting your own business, uh, business plans for dummies, all all those sorts of books that, that you might find at Amazon. Excellent. This has been terrific. Thank you very much, Dr. Corso. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right. And we're back. Thank you to Dr. Kent Corso for that uh, stimulating conversation. Um, 
You can catch more of Kent and his work also in Family Systems and Health. This has actually not been a Family Systems and Health promo today, but we've had a lot of conversation about that, I realize, as I say it again. But Kent is in charge of the books and media section of the of the journal, and so he looks at a lot of uh, like apps, uh, trainings, curriculum, books, uh, any sort of videos, things like that that are relevant to the world of integrated care. So you can catch his section in Family Systems and Health as well. Well, well, thank you so much for listening. As as is our uh, uh, tradition, we usually lead you out with something to center you in your work. And um, Deepu uh, has a lead out for us uh, today. All right. And before I jump into that, two things. One, uh, one of the reasons I'm here in the integrated care world is because of Matt Martin. Matt Martin was my faculty member, my mentor, my supervisor, and everything during my doctoral internship. So Matt, thank you so much for how you've guided me into a field that I love so dearly. So I appreciate our friendship and relationships. So thank you for that. Uh, the other thing is, in order to get busy clinicians really uh, reading more literature, especially in IBH, PCBH world, the PCBH SIG calls in the future will feature an article, and we're going to invite the authors to sort of discuss the article in the second half of the call. So this was just ongoing scientist-practitioner push and uh, invitation to join us. And now for the word of wisdom on our way out. It's a poem called Mortality's Wisdom by Corey Ingram. To learn where you are going, pay attention to the lessons of those who have gone before. You have choices upon which wisdom will yours rest. Close your eyes now. No need to search. You're entering like the air under a wing. Thank you. Thank you, Deepu. And that, that was a physician-written poem, so out of real practical experience for sure. Uh, found in the latest edition of FSH as well. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. I'm Dr. Neftali Saran on behalf of our entire podcast team and our good friend Matt Martin. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.